If you're just joining us today, we're going through a series entitled Road Through Romans, and as the name suggests, we're actually going through the book of Romans. So if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you and invite you to turn to the seventh chapter of Romans, the seventh chapter, and we're just going to go through a few more verses of this very fascinating Um, passage where there seems to be a a great debate among theologians and scholars. Such debate comes along the lines of this, which is the title of my message, Saints or Sinner Saints. For those who trust Jesus Christ as their Saviour, are we called saints or are we called sinner saints? Sinner saints is not in the Bible, by the way. Only saints. And if you've been on this journey with us for quite a while, since the beginning, you will know that this letter to the Romans is addressed to the saints. So why do people come up with this term called sinner saints? And the reason is, is because even though we're saints, we find that we still sin. And therefore, if we still sin, well, we still have to be a sinner. But we're called a saint in the Bible. So let's combine the two and say we're a sinner saint. Very interesting. Why do we feel like we still have to say or identify as being a sinner? Because there's many many songs, rather, sorry, many songs that people write. Um, One of my favorites a sinner saved by grace. But the song implies that you're still a sinner. So you make this decision as we go through these next few verses. Are we actually a saint? Or are we a sinner saint? And this is the amazement of the gospel. This is why it's so just out there and ridiculous. This is actually why the gate is so narrow and not broad because people cannot come to reason with this within their own minds. How marvellous the gospel is. I can't even think of a better word. I've just been trying to look through all these adjectives and say, no, that, that can't be described to how good the gospel is. <gasps> But the gospel is literally we who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we who trust Jesus Christ, that he has forgiven us of all our sins, past, present, and future. And it's just as that one moment that you have made the decision to place your faith in Jesus Christ, that he has made you new. He has made you new to the point where... We say the the fancy word we use is regenerated. We're born again, okay? It's the Christianese that we use. But what that actually means is that even though we still sin, God still views us as a saint. God does not treat us any differently 
if we still go ahead and sin. And we get into our little groups, our, our little circles, and we say, hey, but if we do this, if we show that behavior, if we sin in that way, then surely, surely we're not a Christian. Surely God will not tolerate that. Surely God will not view us the same if we did that. And I'm trying to shock you people. I'm trying to say, what, what would really shock on an action? And I know we can't go much deeper than what 1 Corinthians 5 describes, where Paul does not discount the person who is doing that terrible act. And I'm not going to repeat it because the kids are in the room. But just look at 1 Corinthians 5 if you don't know what that terrible act is. But here's one. What, what if we went ahead and worshipped, we got involved in a church of Satan, and we worshipped Satan. What about that act? Would that discount our salvation? Does that shock any? Because <laughs> this has been asked time and time again. <laughs> and a lot of people will say, I can't, we can't, no, that's impossible. But is it? Is it? Because it's not the behavior that determines whether we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ. It's the conflict. It's the war that goes inside. Do we have that war when we do these things that are dishonoring to God? Can you, can you be fine with doing that? That's the question we've got to ask not just to yourselves, but also to the people that you may know who may have apparently placed their faith in Jesus Christ, even as a child. But is there a war going on? That's what we have to address. That determines really whether you have the Spirit of God living in you. There's going to be chastisement. There's going to be counseling. There's going to be a conflict if I continue to grieve the Holy Spirit. But even if that time comes, God forbid, but even if it does, the amazement of the gospel is that God does not treat us any differently. It doesn't sit right with us because it's not normal. Even in our own relationships, if someone, my kid, let's just say, continually abuses me um, and does it over and over again, and then for me to have the love for it to, just to keep on blessing him. To me, I'd, even that would be hard. Friends, family. It's not normal for us as humans. It's not normal in this world. But that's the love of God. That's grace. We continue to visit this context of Romans chapter 7. The question is, what is the context? In this passage, is Paul talking about when he was lost or when he was a believer, when he was an apostle? The passages that we're going through, the verses that we're going through right now, that's the question that we're asking. That's the question that I've invited you to ask, answer 
yourself and come to that conclusion yourself. And I remind you, if you're just joining us this morning, who's Paul talking to? For I speak to those who know the law. Those who knew the law back in the day were Jews. Those who know the law these days are not just Jews, but they are religionists. We call them religionists. Those who do religion. They do religion to the sake of pleasing God. Because they think their religion will make them acceptable unto God. All these things that we have to do. Yes, that's what you have to do in order to be accepted by God. As well as placing your faith in Jesus Christ. It happened back here when these letters were written by Paul. For instance, Galatians. They believed that you were saved by faith in Jesus Christ. But it didn't stop there. You had to also be circumcised. Why? Because they couldn't comprehend. No, we've been brought up. We had to be circumcised the eighth day. This is what God's wanted from the start. And I, I'm convinced it's what God wants it to the end. They had a name. They were called Judaizers. And this was something that Paul had to tackle head on. And this was something that Paul even had to confront Peter about. Because Peter... One of the apostles even got a little bit carried away with believing that. You read that in Galatians. Have you come to the same conclusion that I have? Paul continues talking to those who know the law. I have not seen any hints in my Bible where Paul has changed the audience. It's very important to understand this because I believe it even continues into chapter 8 and why there is a chapter 8. Which again, a person who says that this is Paul talking as an apostle would disagree with. But we're up to verse 18. And I'm only going to touch on three verses today. Three verses. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And I've underlined that word, that phrase again. Nothing good dwells in me. Now he does say, that is in my flesh. Right? But we'll get into that. But just think about that language that is used. Paul the Apostle. Nothing good dwells in me. Do you see this matching up with another letter that he writes in 1 Corinthians 6.19? Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. You're bought with a price, a precious blood of Jesus Christ but you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We, who trust Jesus, are temples of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. And I'll say it again. I don't believe God can reside, can dwell, can live in the same place 
as sin. I don't believe it. But it does say, it's not in me, that is, well, it is, but it's in my flesh. It's in my flesh. And this flesh, that we, the Greek word sarx, is the word that we've been talking about as being one of our enemies. Remember we have three enemies? The world, the devil, and the flesh. The flesh is enmity towards God. So if the flesh is a part of you, where someone would say it's your humanness, your humanness, is your humanness enmity towards God? Your humanness that's a part of you, in you, is that an enemy of God? That's really what we're going to, that's what we, re- what we really have to answer. That's really what it comes down to. So someone who would believe, first of all, that um, this is Paul talking as an apostle, well, I'll try to get into his mind. What would he say? My flesh, we all have a flesh. It's enmity towards God. But the question is, what is the definition of that flesh? And I've told you that I'm convinced the flesh is not actually our humanness, but it's our old way of thinking. Some people call it, it's your stinking thinking. Our mind is filled with all these thoughts that have been influenced by the way we've been brought up. It's been influenced by our experiences. It's been influenced by just predetermined beliefs, just the, again, it's just the way we've been brought up. And not all these patterns of thinking are aligned with God. But we're always tempted to resort back to them if something happens in our life that causes us to, to, to stir, that causes a disruption, that causes us to take the focus of our living God. In the case of what I believe Paul's saying as a non-believer, as a Jew, Paul as a Jew, nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Now, if Paul's a Jew, is he still in the flesh? The answer is yes. So can he have an old way of thinking? The answer is no. But if he is still in the flesh, then is he still an enemy of God? Yes. If he's still in the flesh, is he distinguishing himself between the flesh and, let's just say, his will, maybe. But you could be safe in replacing that word. To understand this verse more, I'm going to do just this. That flesh can be 
and accurately replaced with sinful nature. Nothing good dwells in me that is in my sinful nature. That is in my human nature. Because all people that are born into this world before they are born again, they have a sinful nature. And once you are regenerated, that sinful nature, bam, disappears. I don't like saying sinful nature, nature, because really what is a nature? It's not even um, described when Paul talks, uh, when any writer of the Bible talks about these verses, they never use nature. They always use spirit. They always use heart. They always use life. They always use creation, something like that. Never nature. Nature is used in other parts and in a different context. But what I want to really focus here is this word, en, which is the Greek word for in. It's a very common preposition, is it not? Used multiple thousands of times in the Bible. And like many other prepositions, it has different meanings. Unfortunately, when looking up this word N, I could not find one Bible version that says it the way I think it says. So I could be wrong, but hear me out. N, according to Strong's Concordance in the Greek, can mean because of. It can mean that. I don't want to go too deep, by the way. So I'm not going to touch on this too much. But just hear my logic. So I believe you could safely say, paraphrase this verse and say, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is because of my flesh. That is because of my sinful nature. I believe I'm not doing any exegetical gymnastics, as they say, um, where I'm just saying how I think it, what Paul is saying. That's my conclusion. For I have the desire to do what is right. Someone would say, no, unbelievers don't have the desire to do what is right. But I disagree. Religionists have the desire to do what is right. Why? Because they believe it makes them acceptable unto God. <laughs> they do have the desire. So that's why I said last week, don't put unbelievers in this passage, even though it is talking about an unbeliever. Put the word Jew or put the word religionist in there. I had the desire, Paul being a Jew, he was a zealous Jew. Just read Philippians and his testimony of how Jewish he was. He was like the Jews of the Jews, just like he was the chief of sinners, the sinners of the sinners. But not the ability to carry it out. He realizes that he has the desire to do what is right, to obey every single one of God's laws, but he knows he does not have the ability to carry it out. He does not have the power. But, aren't we taught 
Where there's a will, there's a way. <laughs> well, in some cases, yes. But when it comes to following every single one of God's commands, obeying every single one of God's laws, I don't think so, Tim. I don't think so. Paul's will is overcome by what? I'll get to it straight away. Verse 20. It's sin. The power of sin. So verse 19. Again he repeats, I want to do what is good, but I don't do it. Can you just picture Paul the Apostle? The one who said... Follow, imitate me as I imitate Christ? Writing this? This is the, I would say the apostle of apostles, even though he was the least of the apostles. But what, he was the least of the apostles because he was one that knew he wasn't worthy to be it. He was one that actually killed Christians. But this is the, the writer of half of the New Testament. It, God chose to reveal his complete revelation through. Can you just picture Paul doing this? I, I can't fathom it myself. Even though someone would just tell me, oh, but Tim, this is a sign of spiritual maturity. Of spiritual maturity. Once you recognize your own sin and you realize, I want to do what's good, but I... I just stuff up so many times. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. So I've said this is the same in both cases. Both cases sides of the debate. In the case of a believer, being like this. You can relate to this, can't you? I can. I want to do what's right. I know deep down I want to, but there are times when I don't do it. I do what is wrong. I stuff up. I sin. I fall into that temptation. But the same can be said with a religionist. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. My willpower is there, but I stuff up anyway. Why do I stuff up? Why do I always fail? Why do I always not live up to that standard? First of all, do you understand why you still sin as a saint? Does everyone understand why they still sin as a saint? Please don't tell me you don't sin anymore. All you have to do is just ask your spouse, ask your children, ask your parents, whatever the case is in the room. But why? It's because we use this to dishonor God. 
we actually choose to do it. Think about that. You don't want to do it, but when you've been wronged, what do we do with our minds? We fixate on that bitterness, don't we? We choose to do it. Think of any addiction that some Christian is going through. Alcohol addiction. Do they not fixate their mind on the alcohol where it brings them to the point where they need it? They choose. First of all, they've probably gone to the, the, um, to the point where they have no alcohol in the house. But in order to do it, you have to choose your mind, make a decision to go to the bottle and buy that alcohol. Think of pornography. A mass addiction in the world today. Not just in non-believers, but in the church. You have to choose to fixate your mind on those images. You are choosing to do it. But if I do the very thing that I don't want to do, if I decide to do it, then I'm not the one doing it anymore. And this is where a person who believes Paul's an apostle writing this is saying, ah, there, there you go. There you go. How do you explain that? I'm not the one doing it anymore. Instead, it is sin that lives in me that is doing it. For a believer, this is easy. Because really, I can't, it goes both ways. Think of something that you may have done where you fell into some temptation. Do you want to do it? No. So you could say, well, it's not me wanting to do it, but I ended up doing it anyway. So what's, what's, what's behind it? Well, we know it's sin, is it not? The presence of sin in this world still gets us tempted to think, to fixate our minds on those things. So that's easier to explain if what Paul's talking about is a believer, of who talk, is he talking about is a believer. In the case, though, of if Paul is talking as a religionist, if he's talking as a Jew, well, I don't think it's anything different, actually. Because he still wants to do it deep down. And we're going to get into that next week, I think. In verse... 22, for I delight in the law after the inward man. Look at verse 22. That inward man can be translated as from the bottom of my heart. From the bottom of my heart, he wants to do the very thing. Well, sorry, he ends up doing the very thing that he doesn't want to do. And he's come to the realization that well, I can't do anything about this. My willpower, it's not 
powerful enough. Something stronger is out there that is getting me to falter. There is a force that is beyond me. It's not me. It's beyond me. It's beyond my willpower. It's, be, it's more powerful than who I am. That's getting me to do that very thing that I don't want to do. It's a perception. I'm not the one doing it anymore. It's beyond me. There's, there's, there has to be some powerful thing out there that's causing me to do this. Remember the objection that he's facing right now? Some would say, yeah, it's the law. The law. But no. He says it again. It is sin that lives in me. That lives in me. That is doing it. Again, I am 100% convinced if God has regenerated us, in order for him to treat us no differently than sin, it is impossible to live inside us. Sin does not live inside us. A house divided cannot stand. God cannot live in the same place. Can he be present in the same place? Yes, because God is omnipresent. And you might be saying, well, sin's present in the world. Doesn't God live in the world? No, God's present in the world, but he does not live in the world. He lives in us. He lives up there. But he's everywhere. Go figure that. He's God. Sin does not dwell within us. We have been made new. Can we still be affected by the presence of sin? Yes. But it's our own fault. It's our own choice. It's the freedom that we have. A non-believer does not have that freedom. A non-believer cannot do the things of God because they do not have the Spirit of God in them. We're different because we have the Spirit of God living in our spirit. We are one. And that Spirit will never leave us. That Spirit will never forsake us. We are sealed until the day of redemption. Again, it comes back to how spectacular the gospel is. In both cases, can Paul literally say it's not him sinning? Yes, I believe so. I'm not the one doing it anymore. Instead, it is sin. That's Romans chapter 7. And I promise, I promise we will finish chapter 7 this week. Uh, next week. Next week. In just in time for Christmas. Let's pray and thank God. Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks because you give us the victory. You give us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And when we read passages like this, I know we're tempted to think that because Paul is easily defeated, we are easily defeated.
But Father God, thank you regardless of what our view is of this passage. You are the answer to our problems. You are the answer to every single solution here on earth. And we just want to just bask in your glory right now, rejoicing in the truth and the fact that you have made us new inside out. And we can never, never be taken away from you. We can never be separated from you. Thank you that you had made us one and that we even get to celebrate that oneness each and every day. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.